This is Vicki Iden with your local news coming to you live via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Associated Press reports that a Dane County judge told the attorneys for Assembly Speaker Robin Voss that her, quote, patience was wearing thin, end quote, over their failure to produce requested email records pertaining to the 2020 presidential election. The speaker had been given until today to provide the deleted emails and texts. The speaker's attorney said that he had an expert witness who would testify on April 7th that deleted text messages could not be recovered. A local advocacy group has filed a complaint with the Environmental Protection Agency that looks to block the Air Force from stationing F-35 jets at Truax Field. The organization, Safe Skies Clean Water Wisconsin, alleges that the Air Force violated the Civil Rights Act because the new jets will disproportionately affect low-income families and people of color who live near Truax. The complaint asks the EPA to either block the deployment of the jets or develop a plan to reduce the noise level from the jets. The complaint also asks the EPA to eliminate the contamination of the groundwater resulting from the use of firefighting foam containing PFAS. Also signing onto the complaint are Midwest Environmental Advocates, Wisconsin Environmental Health Network, and the Madison Teachers Union and School Board. The Capital Times reports that the Madison School District has continued to struggle to find substitute teachers even as the Omicron wave of COVID has subsided. Since February, a little more than half of all absences have been filled by subs. The lowest rate last month was 48% and the highest rate was 58%. Madison's problem is not unique. School districts throughout the U.S. have complained of their increased inability to find subs. When subs cannot be found, classes may be doubled up, and non-classroom staff, such as administrators, are sent to classrooms. Since the onset of the pandemic, the district has sent central office staff members to help cover absences. The rate for subs filling empty classrooms has been dropping in the years prior to the pandemic, but has accelerated amid COVID-19. In five years, the rate has fallen almost by half. In 2016, the rate was at 92%, but now stands at around 55% for this year. Dane County's Vilas Zoo has closed its bird exhibits through at least April to protect against a deadly and highly contagious bird flu recently found in Wisconsin. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that penguins, flamingos, and chickens have been moved inside of the aviary, which will be closed to the public. Flamingos will still be visible through a viewing window. A zoo spokesperson said, quote, We're so close to Lake Wingra. We have a lot of waterfowl that come through. Our main concern is making sure that we don't get any positive cases on grounds. It could be very catastrophic for our bird population. If one bird has it, it will spread very rapidly. And now on to today's top stories. Charges were never filed against a Madison police officer who shot and killed Tony Robinson in 2015. But a little-known state law could reopen the case and help his family find the justice they've been searching for over the past seven years. WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt has the story. 
The grandmother of Tony Robinson has filed a petition asking a judge to press charges against the Madison police officer who shot and killed her grandson in 2015. She's using a relatively obscure state law to ask a judge to look at new evidence that has emerged in the seven years since her grandson's killing. Everybody deserves their day in court, and that includes my grandson. Because an officer shot him, that's the only reason he didn't get it. That's not good enough for me. I've read this evidence up one side and down the other. I know exactly what I'm saying. Officer Matt Kenny shot and killed Tony Terrell Robinson in March 2015, and Kenny is still on the Madison police force today. At the time, Dane County DA Ishmael Ozane declined to press charges despite urging from Robinson's family. A federal civil lawsuit filed in the fall of 2015 by Robinson's family alleges Kenny violated Robinson's Fourth Amendment rights. Eventually, the city settled out of court. During that 2015 litigation, the judge in the case did find that forensic evidence differed from Kenny's account and that there was enough evidence to bring Kenny's credibility into question. Irwin, who was not part of the settlement and received no money, says that all she has wanted is justice for her grandson. There's too much differences here for me to just say yes to you. This was a, a federal judge who said he must stand trial. And no, it didn't happen. But, you know, that's that's evidence to me. And Irwin says she wants people, especially a judge, to look at the evidence. To do that, she's using a little-known state statute that says that if a district attorney refuses or is unable to file charges, a circuit judge is able to issue a criminal complaint if they find probable cause. The petition delivered by Irwin earlier this week calls for a judge to take a second look at the evidence surrounding the case and file a complaint charging Officer Kenny with either first or second degree reckless homicide. If a judge finds probable cause, the complaint asks the judge to assign a special prosecutor who has no ties to law enforcement. Irwin says she is not concerned that the law she's using is relatively unknown. This law is written for us, me, the guy down the street who's having a difficult time and can use this. This is a very vague law, but it, it works for us. And it does work for citizens. This is a citizen's law. A similar process using a different section of state laws underway in Milwaukee, where a family is seeking charges against a former Wauwatosa officer who shot and killed Jay Anderson Jr. in 2016. A decision on that case is expected within the next few weeks. Irwin maintains that multiple parts of Kenny's story don't add up and that evidence that was not considered years ago should be looked at this time. She says Kenny's narrative of events changed multiple times and that forensic evidence collected after the shooting cast a shadow over his credibility. Irwin says that she is confident that there is enough evidence to show probable cause that Kenny had acted recklessly. The complaint was filed by attorney Sayovata Idari, who also works as a local chocolatier. Irwin says Idari has been working pro bono, though they are trying to raise funds to compensate her for her time. More information is at inpursuitofjustice.net. Idari could not be reached by airtime, neither could District Attorney Ishmael Ozane. As of today, the case has been accepted by Dane County Judge Valerie Bailey Wrynn. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggy Hout. This month, state lawmakers took one of the final steps in a years-long plan to close the Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake Youth prisons, which have been plagued by controversy for years. 
One advocate says their closure could open up a new chapter in Wisconsin's juvenile justice system. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has more. This month, Wisconsin's legislature passed a bipartisan agreement to build a replacement for the controversial Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake Youth Prisons, a move one advocate says should come with a new approach to youth justice. The bill allocates nearly $42 million to construct a new high-security facility in Milwaukee County. Erica Nelson with the advocacy group Kids Forward says the new facility should be counterbalanced with community investments to keep kids out of the system. Nelson says she hopes by reducing admissions to the prison, it eventually will lose its high security designation. Make prevention, intervention, and diversion as much of a priority for our youth as building a new facility. A bill setting an initial closure date of January 2021 for the facilities was signed into law in 2018, after numerous reports of child abuse and mismanagement at the two youth prisons. The state missed that goal because while lawmakers passed a bill to close the facilities, it took them until this session to approve funding for a replacement. Governor Tony Evers has indicated that he'll likely sign the measure. A new report from the Sentencing Project indicates that kids in the U.S. were locked up in juvenile facilities nearly 250,000 times in 2019, and Black and Latino kids were 50% more likely to face incarceration than their white counterparts. Report author Josh Rovner says locking kids up, even briefly, can have long-term consequences. For one, there's self-harm. Children are at a much higher risk of suicide having been detained. Not surprisingly, kids who are detained are much less likely to graduate from high school. While the new youth prison's location in Milwaukee County isn't finalized, one proposal is for the current site of the Felmers O. Cheney Correctional Center, which provides pre-release re-entry support for men exiting the carceral system. Several social justice advocacy groups have pushed back against that location, arguing the center provides an important service to the community. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.16 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. whiplash of redistricting news, the nation's top court today rejected legislative maps that had just recently been okayed by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. At the heart of the issue, whether some seats in Milwaukee are allowable under federal voting laws. That means the redistricting process isn't over, even as the fall election season begins to kick into high gear. As the story broke this afternoon, News Director Sholly Pittman called up Patrick Marley, esteemed political reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. 
Breaking this afternoon is an unusual decision handed down by the U.S. Supreme Court, rejecting a recent state Supreme Court decision to decide political boundaries. And while it leaves congressional boundary lines alone, it throws the rest of the state's maps akimbo again. Patrick Marley, before we get to today's decision, remind us what the Wisconsin Supreme Court adopted as the state's maps just a few weeks ago. Sure. So first, it actually goes back to November. Uh, The state Supreme Court issued a ruling that said that it would decide the maps since the governor and lawmakers couldn't uh, decide where to put the lines, but that it would make as few changes to the maps from 2011 as possible. Those 2011 maps are very favorable to Republicans. So the starting place was a, a good situation for Republicans. Then everybody involved in the lawsuit submitted uh, proposals, and the Supreme Court this month decided on a 4-3 basis that it would adopt the maps drawn by Governor Tony Evers. Uh, Now that's gone to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court has thrown those out, and we go back to an earlier stage of the process. When we're talking about the uh, maps that the Wisconsin Supreme Court decided to adopt, they were mostly plans submitted by Governor Evers, although they were Republican-leaning, but they also uh, made some small changes to districts in Milwaukee. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Yes. So the big change that that Governor Evers made to the Milwaukee area in the assembly districts was that uh, he increased the number of districts with a majority of black voters from six to seven. And uh, that became a point of contention in in this litigation. But it increased the number of minority majority districts by one in the assembly. And that is kind of what prompts today's decision by the United States Supreme Court. We get today's decision, which is somewhat unexpected, at least if you weren't paying attention, uh, that says that the lower state court did not properly apply something called the Voting Rights Act, which was established long ago and is often at the heart of voting cases. So first, can you tell us just what is the Voting Rights Act and then what is SCOTUS's reasoning here? So the Voting Rights Act is among the many things it's meant to do to protect the voting rights of voters is to ensure that um, black voters and Latino voters and other minority voters uh, in areas where they have large populations that they can elect candidates of their choosing. When you draw lines for maps, it's easy to carve them up in ways that benefit one party or another. And so Congress in the 1960s, when it adopted the Voting Rights Act was ma- making sure that, you know, when you have a large black population in a place like Milwaukee, that black voters get to decide who they want to represent them in Congress and the legislature, rather than having them packed into other districts so, so their votes are diluted. Now, federal law is very complicated because when you're dealing with other parts of the country, uh, you know, an area that doesn't have a very large uh, minority population, you cannot take race into account. So there's this balancing act that map drawers have to do. They, they can't consider race for most of the maps that they draw, but they must consider race in other places. And so what the Supreme Court said here was that Evers and the state Supreme Court were taking race into account at a time where they had not established that they could even be thinking about race. That is a wonderful explanation. Um, Now, the reactions that I've seen to this online today have been that this 
was unexpected. Um, Rick Hassan, a professor of election law, writing for his election law blog, called it bizarre and many levels and really described it as uh, chipping away at the Voting Rights Act, which was intended, as you said, decades ago to um, increase protections for um, minority voters. So what kind of reactions are you seeing from politicos and experts to this decision? Well, he is right that this continues a trend of, you know, the um, parts of the Voting Rights Act have been taken away by the U.S. Supreme Court over the last decade or so. And this decision comes very late in the process. We've got the elections this fall. The primary for legislative districts is on August 9th. Candidates take out paperwork for those districts on April 15th. And in general, the U.S. Supreme Court and other courts have been shy about making changes to election decisions close to elections. So that's a, that's another reason that this decision is unusual. You know, this decision also doesn't have, um, it comes on the so-called shadow docket. So the court hasn't spelled out who's in the majority. We do know there are two dissenters, but we don't know if there are others who dissented in a more quiet way or who didn't participate. So that's why he's saying it's unusual in a number of ways. Yeah. Could we dive into how the the court decided this? I mean, traditionally, it would take a lot more time to review a case like this that has significant implications, especially so close to an election. Um, But it's a per curiam opinion, but it has two dissents. And so you can kind of sort of figure out who's in calling balls and strikes. How often well, have you seen five, that? There would be at least five, right? Because you have to have a majority. Right. Um, the, uh, you know, the, I think the two big questions are, uh, Justice Breyer is not noted on the dissent. So did he, did he agree with the majority or not? That's uh, one big question. And then Justice Thomas is sick right now. So the question is, did he participate at all? And that's just something we don't know. Oh, okay. What reaction have you seen from politicos, from elected officials, political leaders, et cetera? I mean, I would say, well, first of all, it's, you know, this decision's only a couple hours uh, old, and I think all sides are sort of scouring it and figuring it out and trying to decide their next step. So there's a lot of people who aren't saying much. But, you know, in general, Republicans would call this a win. They're the ones who asked the U.S. Supreme Court to throw out Evers maps. Democrats would call it a loss for them because, you know, it's, for a brief moment, they had Evers maps in place. Uh, so that's not a decision that they were ever terribly satisfied with because the way the state Supreme Court had ordered everyone to draw maps in the first place were based on the 2011 maps, which, again, have a Republican tilt to them. So even when the Democrats were in a winning position, they still were looking at maps with very strong uh, Republican majorities in the state assembly and state senate. So what happens next? I assume that the state Supreme Court has to now redraw these lines on a very quick timeline. So what what happens on a very granular level? Are, are they starting from scratch? You know. Yeah, so I think the first thing we have to do is see what the state Supreme Court does. Presumably, it will issue some kind of order, perhaps yet today or in the coming days, saying, We've received this decision from the U.S. Supreme Court, and now we are ordering the parties to give us briefing on X, Y, or Z. Now it's it's possible before the state Supreme Court does anything, parties to the case would start filing motions asking them to do this or that. There are a number of options that the state Supreme Court has. It could, yeah, it could draw new maps from scratch. It could say, well, Evers maps didn't work, so we'll go with one of, you know, there's probably eight or 10 different maps that have been submitted to them. They could choose one of the other maps. They could ask people to 
modify Evers' maps so that uh, they use his maps for most of the state, but they come up with something new uh, in Milwaukee. It'd be very unlikely for the Supreme Court to just wholesale draw its own maps, the state Supreme Court. You know, they, they had that option earlier in this case, and they uh, declined to do that. They said, we want others to submit maps for us to consider, and then we'll take the ones that we think have the fewest changes to what were the maps that were drawn in 2011. As a closing thought, Wisconsin seems to be a place where decisions about election rules happen very close to elections. If we can recall all the way back to spring 2020, decisions going from court to court and changing and reversing um, right up until the spring election, uh, which kind of prompted a lot uh, of deliberation after after the fact. Um, Is that unusual for a state or is Wisconsin cursed? What's going on here? Well, you know, as I said earlier, courts generally, and this comes from the U.S. Supreme Court, have set this policy of trying to not do this at the last minute. And and you're right, in the last couple of years, we really have had a lot of that. Now, in 2020, we were the first state to have a statewide election. Uh, it was the, the primary right at the beginning of the pandemic. Some other states delayed their primaries. We didn't because we had not just a primary, but the state Supreme Court race. Governor Evers tried to actually postpone that election. Um, and I think the decision that the election would continue was made um, just the day before the election. So um, we have, re- and then, you know, we saw a lot of late litigation for the fall 2020 election. So the courts have really broken with that now, uh, that idea of not making changes close to the time of an election. Now that was a pandemic. That's something out of anybody's control. It was the very early stages what we have here is a lot more predictable. Redistricting happens every 10 years. Uh, you know, we all knew this was going to go to court early on. So, you know, everybody from the courts to the litigants probably could have done more earlier to avoid us being at this stage. But this is where we are. Patrick Marley, thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Patrick Marley is political reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. We've been speaking about a breaking U.S. Supreme Court decision today, this afternoon to reject a Wisconsin Supreme Court decision deciding the state's maps. We will, of course, have more to come on this story. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. We learn more about the newest candidate for the U.S. Supreme Court, Madison in the 60s joins a bus trip to the nation's capital with the civil civil rights movement and your latest up-to-the-date weather forecast. But now we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for joining us tonight. All this week, 
U.S. Supreme Court Justice candidate Ketanji Brown-Jackson has sat for confirmation hearings to decide whether or not she will become the first black woman to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court. The hearings have descended into an investigation into Brown-Jackson's political beliefs as she has asked about critical race theory and past confirmations by the Republican senators at the hearing. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt spoke with John Gross, a clinical associate professor at UW-Madison, to learn more about Brown-Jackson and the confirmation hearings. So, John, to start things off here, who is Katanji Brown-Jackson and what makes her qualified to sit on the Supreme Court? Uh, well, uh, Judge Jackson has been on uh, the District of Columbia Court of Appeals, one of the um, uh, premier highest uh, federal courts in the land. She's been doing that for, for almost a decade now, um, so she has plenty of experience as a judge. Um, before she became a judge, she had a very distinguished legal career. Um, she uh, went to Harvard Law School. She uh, clerked for the Supreme Court judge, who she will actually be replacing. Um, she worked in the private sector. Uh, she was a member of the Federal Sentencing Commission. She spent some time as a, as a federal public defender as well. So um, she has a, a really uh, outstanding resume, and, and one could really make the case that um, not only is her resume consistent with those of other members of the court, uh, it, it actually might even be um, more broad, more diverse in terms of the types of legal work that she's done and, and some of the accolades that she's received. And you brought up that she was a public defender. Uh, does that sort of differentiate her from the other judges who are on the court? How does her history as a public defender set her apart? It makes her very unique, and it's a bit odd to say that, considering the number of criminal cases that the court hears on their docket and the the number of criminal cases filed in in state courts. Uh, it, you know, criminal cases are, um, according to the Center for the State Courts, they are pretty much the most common type of court filing in the country. We haven't had a Supreme Court justice who's done defense work for about a quarter of a century. Um, and, the, and the judges that we do have uh, tend to have experience as prosecutors. Uh, justice Sotomayor, for instance, spent five years as a, as a prosecutor at the start of her career uh, in New York City. But, but our, our federal bench in general, and the Supreme Court in particular, uh, tends to lack folks who have had the experience representing criminal defendants either at the trial or the appellate level. And so, um, so this would be really, um, really uh, an important addition and one that, one that is seldom uh, made to the federal bench. And can you sort of elaborate a little bit why is it so important that we have this person on the bench that has this background in being a public defender? Why is that important to the court? So I think one of the reasons why it is it is very important is that many of the judges on the court and throughout the federal judiciary are are lawyers who have represented the government. Um, and and when you do represent the government as an institution, um, not only you know might that indicate a sort of bias toward the status quo or a bias toward the government. I think more fundamentally, when you are representing the state or an agency, you don't necessarily have a person as a client. When you're a defense attorney, when you're defending someone, 
um, you know, you have a relationship with that individual. You see the impact that the criminal justice system has on that individual person, on their family, in the community where that they live. And so I, I think uh, uh, Judge Brown-Jackson has mentioned a number of times, I think, during her confirmation hearings, uh, that she, she, she really puts a value on empathy uh, and explaining the process to uh, the litigants, especially the defendants who come before her as a judge. And I think that translates directly to the experience of representing a person and and having that sense of empathy and that bond with an individual client. And I think that's that's something that you don't necessarily get if you work for the state. So now the confirmation hearings have been going on for the past couple of days now. What have those hearings been like? Well, uh... Having having listened to portions of them, uh, I think sadly a, a large portion of these hearings are uh, political theater. Um, a, a lot of the senators are, are taking the opportunity not to really ask her questions about her qualifications, uh, but to target specific issues that they think are going to resonate with their base. Um, and so I, I think she has been very, uh, to say the least, judicial uh, in her handling of the situation um, and, and trying to get the senators to engage with her on uh, on her record, on uh, her process as a judge. And and um, and not wanting to discuss some of these um, other, you know, uh, I think um, uh, issues that have more to do with um, politics than the judiciary. And so you mentioned there that things are going a little bit differently than they usually go. How does this sort of compare to other confirmation hearings for the Supreme Courts in recent years? Let's say. Ah, uh, well, I, I I think I think that this. This, these hearings that are going on now are a symptom of, I think, our larger polarization and, and, and our, our, our uh, partisanship that has gone into our politics. As I said, she, she's an extremely qualified uh, jurist to be placed on the Supreme Court, and, and it would be historical because we are appointing a, a black woman to the Supreme Court as well. And so I think there there could have been many many reasons for the senators to approach this with a sense of uh, bipartisanship because of her qualifications because of the historic nature of this appointment. But instead, uh, what what we're seeing uh, are you know I, I think sometimes blatant misrepresentations and mischaracterizations of her record, uh, and and it's even worse I think because some of it is coming from folks who they themselves are lawyers. I mean we heard. Ted Cruz talk about how they were at Harvard at the same time on the law review, um, and yet Senator Cruz spent most of his time talking about critical race theory, something that really has nothing to do with her qualifications or her judicial philosophy. Um, and so uh, I, I think it's a bit of a missed opportunity, and 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 it you know it's supposed to be a job interview. <laughs> in some ways, uh, and and I think there's sometimes when senators are speaking past her, I, I don't, I, I think she, I don't know what question they're actually asking her during the hearings. It's more an opportunity for them to talk about how they were unhappy with prior confirmation hearings or other things that the other side has done in the past, or uh, or or things far outside uh, Justice uh, Brown Jackson's purview. And so if Brown-Jackson is confirmed and joins the Supreme Court, what does that mean for the court in the foreseeable future here? 
Well, you know, in the short run, it's not going to really change the ideological makeup of the court. She is she is replacing another justice who is considered uh, more liberal. Um, the more conservative justices have a solid majority on the court. So um, it will be interesting to see if she can have an impact, um, if she can uh, build consensus. Um, you know, Justice Roberts, the chief justice, I, I think is someone who often looks to try to build consensus um, amongst the justices and, and uh, Judge uh, Jackson Brown might be in that vein as well. Uh, perhaps some of the other more conservative justices will appreciate her uh, variety of experience, especially when it comes to criminal issues that they're wrestling with. And so we'll have to see, but, but I, I expect we will be seeing uh, her writing mostly in the dissent for the foreseeable future. And now one thing you brought up before that I sort of wanted to circle back to with if Brown Jackson is confirmed to the Supreme Court, she would be the first black woman to serve on the bench. What does that mean for the Supreme Court itself? Well, you know, diversity matters. Um, You know, it matters not just for the decision making of the court itself to have different voices, to have people with different experiences. Um, But it also matters, uh, you know, to the legal community in general. Um, You know, I I, I teach law students and and having uh, the first a uh, black woman sit on the Supreme Court is is going to be significant for for many of my students. That will be seen as a signal, as a message that uh, there are career paths open to them that may not have been there ten, twenty, thirty years ago. Certainly, um, and so you know, it it sends a broader message about inclusiveness within the legal profession. We as lawyers have have a diversity problem. Uh, we don't have enough uh, women and people of color amongst our ranks. Um, and so, you know, it's it's important not just for the court itself, but it's important for uh, the practice of law um, to diversify our, our bench and to diversify our profession. And John, do you just have any final thoughts on the matter that you'd like to share with me? Uh, I, 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 I hope I hope that um, her appointment uh, is is one where which will be followed in the future where other folks who have done defense work will not be, um, that that will not be a disqualifier for them, even though um, some of that aspect of her record has been brought up by the senators in a a negative light. Um, You know, there is a constitutional guarantee of counsel. um, And and those of us who provide that uh, to folks accused of crimes, we play an essential and integral part of our legal system, of our justice system, and so uh, hopefully, hopefully she will, she will, uh, she will be appointed, she will be confirmed, and it will send another message that being a defense lawyer is not a disqualifier from sitting on the bench. I've been talking with John Gross, clinical associate professor of law over at UW Madison, uh, about Tanji Brown Jackson and the Supreme Court confirmation hearings that are going on right now. Uh, John, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Oh, it was my pleasure. With this week's abrupt change in weather comes another change. WORT weatherman Rob McClure is out this week, but only temporarily. Tonight, your comprehensive weather report is in the capable hands of Caitlin Davis, who is joining the weather crew in the WORT news department. Caitlin has this report from earlier today.
Well, that miserable rain was with us all of yesterday and is also continuing with us part of today, along with some fog. Early morning commuters may have seen some slick roads and fog causing decreased visibility. Unfortunately, those conditions will likely continue through Friday night. The chance of rain remains about 40%, and if you're driving, you'll most likely see some dense fog continuing from last night. The temperatures should steadily stay around 42 degrees throughout the day, and the winds reaching about 9 miles per hour. The high looking to reach about 45 degrees, and then later dropping down to 34 degrees. Yesterday, we were able to see a change in the weather from Monday. Cold, rainy temperatures blew in throughout the day. In the morning, we saw a good amount of precipitation falling, then later slowing down throughout the day, but around 2 p.m. picking up again. For most hours of the day, the temperature and dew points stay within 2 degrees of each other, which causes this precipitation that's continuing into today. In the upper atmosphere, the temperature and dew points stayed close as well, which typically would mean snow or freezing rain. But the warmer temperatures in the lower atmosphere did not allow for the freezing rain and snow to come down to us. <laughs> temperatures reached the mid-40s, but because of the continuous steady winds that we were seeing in Wisconsin, it only felt to be in the mid to upper 30s. The temperature on Monday reached 73 degrees, but as soon as the sun disappeared, an unfortunate cold front made its way in. We saw a 20 degree drop in just short of two hours, which we are now seeing the effects of today. The lack of cloud coverage on Monday also feeds into the frigid temperature drop. When clouds are present, it acts as a blanket. It helps warm the atmosphere, and with no clouds, we get no added insulation. The weather continued to be in the upper 40s and lower 50s through Tuesday, along with precipitation. That same weather looks to be with us the rest of the week. Winds coming from north-northeast and later changing to north-northwest, which is keeping the temperature down. Hopefully, you were able to get outside and enjoy the weather earlier this week, because as of now, it does not seem like we will be seeing that weather for a while again. The Midwest sure does like to tease us with a glimpse of what we want to see, but they quickly reminds us of where we are. If you had a chance to drive past Lake Mendota or Lake Monona on Monday, you probably saw that the ice has finally began to melt. But surely enough, it'll go right back to being frozen, which is fortunate if you're an ice skater or ice fisher, but it's unfortunate for the rest of us as it's just a reminder of the frigid Wisconsin weather. Temperatures currently sitting around 41 degrees with winds sitting right at nine miles per hour. That continuing wind chill making its way into Wisconsin. So it's probably gonna feel shy of 41 degrees. The dew point is sitting at about 40 degrees, which is overlapping the temperature, causing that humidity that we are feeling outside and also that precipitation that we might be seeing. In the upper atmosphere, the temperature and dew point are within a few degrees of each other, but continuing into the lower atmosphere, there's a huge gap between the two, which is why there's only a 30% chance of rain. Tonight, there's a possibility of continued rain, a possibility of snow between 1 and 2 a.m., but with only about a 60% chance of this happening, we will likely see little to no accumulation. And moving into tomorrow, we will see a chance of rain again. Spring has finally arrived, and so have the splotchy showers. The cloudy skies are likely to continue into the morning as well, with a slight to little chance um, of snow accumulation. Although the winds seem to be lower on Thursday, that's going to be a change on Friday, where we could see wind gusts up to 30 miles per hour. The wind in the morning should be at a steady 5 to 9 miles per hour, but later into Friday, we could see them reaching around 17 miles per hour coming from the northwest. It's now 6.48 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
We go now to March 1965, when the city and university were focused on the civil rights march from Selma to Montgomery, and one of Madison's most important industrialists passed away. Stu Levitan has the new from the news from 57 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, March 1965 On the 14th, close to a thousand Madison residents, most coming directly from church, mass at the State Street steps of the state capitol for a prayer vigil in support of the civil rights activists marching from Selma to Montgomery. Republican Governor Warren Knowles draws sustained applause when he salutes the demonstrators, including a group that walked almost two miles through biting winds from the First Congregational Church on Breeze Terrace. Rabbi Manfred Schwarzenski's Master of Ceremonies for the program organized by the Reverend George Van, pastor of St. Paul's African Methodist Episcopal Church. The emotional highlight is the eulogy by First Unitarian Society's Reverend Max Gabler for his friend, the Reverend James Reeb of the Unitarian Universalist Church in Boston, who died Thursday after being attacked by segregationists in Selma. Two days later, three busloads of badgers bound for Alabama to support the historic march leave town on a trip arranged by the University Friends of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, F. SNCC. I am proud that our students are concerned enough about basic human rights to express their views, Chancellor Robin Fleming says, calling on instructors to treat the two-day absences as they do, quote, other collegiate ventures which cause temporary absence. But the original destination, Selma, is getting too dangerous. The group heads for Montgomery instead, until the situation there also proves so hazardous that SNCC officials ask the 114 students to head for Washington, D.C. instead to protest the federal failure to protect the marchers. After talking it over for more than two hours at the Chicago bus depot, the group reluctantly agrees to the new plan. It becomes a wintry four-day vigil in front of the White House. Squatting on snowy, slushy sidewalks isn't much fun, and the students are a bit bitter about not being Alabama-bound. But they draw national media to the cause and feel they've done some good. At night, the students stay at the Lincoln Memorial Congregational Temple, sleeping on the pews and floor. Meanwhile, a chartered flight of about 25 clergy, doctors with donated medical supplies, and law students leaves Madison for Montgomery at about 2 in the morning on St. Patrick's Day. But the Freedom Flyers make it only to Chicago before they're snowbound by a late winter storm and stuck for 24 hours. Still, their spirits stay high. We shall overcome, one passenger is said to remark, even the weather. Attorney General Bronson LaFollette served as secretary-treasurer of the committee, which raised the necessary $3,000 for the flight. The group finally makes it to Montgomery late Thursday morning, March 18th, staying about 18 hours to observe, assist, and report on the march. University YMCA Program Director Jim Sykes is among those walking the last miles into the Capitol. 
Daily Cardinal editor Gail Bensinger and sports editor David Wolf bear witness in Montgomery, while reporter Eric Newhouse, on the bus initially slated for Selma, reports from Washington. In campus news this month, on the 4th, the Hillel Foundation on Langdon Street hosts a coffee and cookies reception for folk singer Pete Seeger, a fundraiser for the University Friends of SNCC. A minimum contribution of 75 cents is requested. The highlight of Seeger's Orpheum show that night is a driving rendition of Bob Dylan's A Hard Rains Are Gonna Fall that delights and excites the near-capacity crowd. On the 15th, Three weeks after the Committee to End the War in Vietnam registers as a student organization, David Keene registers the UW Young Americans for Freedom, an affiliate to the National Conservative Group, which has grown from meeting at author and polemicist William F. Buckley's Connecticut Estate on September 11, 1960, into an enduring and powerful right-wing organization. On the 28th, Though her lustrous voice is not the wonder it once was, world-renowned contralto Marian Anderson still thrills the capacity stock pavilion crowd of 3,000, her third cow barn concert since 1938, with a program of classical songs and Negro spirituals. Madison is one of only 50 stops on her international farewell concert tour. On the 30th, Renowned combat photojournalist and Shorewood native Dickie Chappelle tells the 500 guests at the Matrix Dinner in Great Hall that America is losing the war in Vietnam. Dr. Catherine F. Clarenbeck, toastmistress for the Theta Sigma Phi event, speaks on the need of every woman to become active in her community and fulfill her own potential. Chappelle, sister of UW geology professor Richard Meyer, later speaks at a pro-war rally sponsored by the Committee to Support the People of South Vietnam. She tells a crowd of about 200 at the law school that she's, quote, honored to attend the first counter-demonstration in support of the war. And an important passing to note, Oscar G. Meyer, 76, whose family visit to Madison in 1919 led to the founding of the city's most important private employer of the 20th century, dies in his sleep of a heart attack at his home in Evanston, Illinois, on March 5th. Meyer, then the general manager of his father's Chicago packing plant, was here to visit his brother-in-law, banker Fredericks W. Sewer. One day, when it was too rainy to go for a drive, Sewer told him there was an auction for a failed meatpacking co-op near the sewage plant on the northeast side of town. Meyer had been looking for a rural slaughterhouse to decentralize the operations, and he liked what he saw. His father, Oscar F. Meyer, authorized him to offer $300,000 for the facility, which co-op members overwhelmingly accepted. A few months later, the company subsidized the extension of streetcar tracks from the east side to the plant so its workers could get to the remote site. It also built 50 modest homes for its workers. Meyer became chairman and moved the company headquarters to Madison upon his father's death at age 95 in 1955. At the time, the company employed close to 5,000 workers, about one-third of the city's entire industrial workforce. Meyer and several executives, especially Oscar C. Boltz, also became important local philanthropists. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WRT News Team, 
I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show. Thank you for listening to WORT's live local news at 6 p.m. Monday through Thursday nights. Your headline writer was David Ahrens. A warm welcome to our new weather crew member, Caitlin Davis, filling in for Rob McClure this week. Thanks to feature contributors Stu Levitan, Chuck Kateman engineered tonight's broadcast, Nate Weggehaupt produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night. <laughs>